0: morning again, and if you have your notebooks, why don't you go ahead and open up to the next blank page, and if you have your Bibles, I guess if you have your Bible, not your Bibles, although maybe somebody brings more than one, I don't know, but uh, if you have your Bible, let's open to Mark chapter 9. We're now in our ninth week of working our way through the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And we reminded ourselves last week, and if you're looking for something to put in your notebook, this is, I would suggest, this is a great thing to put in your notebook. Not because we're going to have a final test, but it just helps us as we walk our way through all 16 chapters. What we've done so far is we have, um, well, we've done a couple things. We've tried to come up with a name for each chapter that is a little reference to a particular paragraph in each chapter. But beyond that, we've come up with what I think are five primary topics that are talked about or revealed over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And those five things are, and let's just walk our way through this. Number one, we've come to understand that Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is the Son of the living God. The second thing we've talked about in the first eight chapters is Jesus, because He is the Son of God, He has miraculous powers. Number three, Jesus did not do ministry alone. He worked with His disciples. Number four, Jesus has power over everyday natural things. And number five, Jesus loved to teach in parables. So with that in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 9. Now there's something that happens here in Mark chapter 9 that falls into the category of It's either unexplainable or indescribable. There's something that happens here that if we finally just take the time to go slowly through one of these paragraphs, instead of trying to see how fast we can read through the chapter. By the way, those of you who are reading the next chapter during the week, thank you for doing that. I think it helps when we get here on Sunday that we're already familiar with the topic. But there's something that happens here in Mark chapter 9 that is completely unexplainable. And what happens is so, it impacted the lives of the disciples to the point that years later, they still talked about it. Okay? Now, you and I might have things in our life that, wow, we're still talking about, you know, some of us are still stuck in high school. We're still talking about things that happened in high school. Some of us got past that. Now we're talking about things that happened a year ago. Some of these things have impacted our lives that years later we're still talking about him. But with that in mind, let's go to Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 2 through 13. Now, let me make a comment. We're not going to read verse 1. But when I say that, now the first thing you're going to do is go and read verse 1. Um, Mark 9.1 is actually a comment about what Jesus was talking about at the end of Mark chapter 8. And I have no idea why that's in Mark chapter 9. In my opinion, and it's only mine, that Mark 9.1 should be verse 39 of Mark 8. But I'm not the publisher of the Bible, and the publishers have all put it in the next, and I don't know why that is. But we're not going to belabor that. Let's just pick up our text. Mark chapter 9, follow along in your Bibles, please, as I read verses 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Let me go back in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now this mountain that Mark is talking about in verse 2 is called Mount Hermon. It's interesting to me. Now, I don't have another word. You can come up with another word. But for me, it's interesting that when Luke tells this same story in Luke chapter 9, and we're not going to turn there, but you can read that this afternoon. It's interesting well, I've got two things that are interesting about this. It's interesting to me that when Luke talks about this in Luke talk in Luke 9, he says that Jesus was going up the mountain with Peter and James and John, and they were going there to pray. The first thing that interests me is that Mark never says anything about going up on the mountain to pray. Okay? But there's a second thing that has always intrigued me. There seems to be two or three groups of disciples. Now there are times when Jesus is with a bigger group, as many as 120, and the word disciples is in that paragraph. Jesus is spending time with 120 disciples, but most of the time he's spending with the 12 disciples, okay? But then there's another time, more than one time, where he spends time with Peter, John, and James. It's like this is, and I've heard this term, this term before, it's the inner circle. And this is what's interesting to me. My first question is, where's Andrew? Now remember when we started this, walking our way through the Gospel of Mark, we, when Jesus calls the first disciples, five of the twelve disciples are from the same little town up there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Capernaum. Jesus is walking along the shore, and he invites Peter and his brother Andrew to be a disciples. Come, follow me. And they drop everything and follow Jesus. And it seems to be that he just goes a little bit farther down the beach and and here's John and his brother James and he invites them to give up this fishing career and come follow me, come be my disciples. And they more or less do the whole thing. They just stop and drop everything. And so these four guys, and then they they leave the lake and they go into downtown Capernaum, which is a little village, And there's a guy there, a tax collector, and his name is Levi, also known as Matthew. And Jesus says, come follow me. And that's the Steve Anderson translation. But within a short amount of time, Jesus has five of his disciples, all from the same little town. These five guys all grew up in the same town. They all went to the same synagogue. They all played on the same baseball team, if they had baseball back then in Capernaum. They all knew each other. But now, fast forward... A year or two or three. It seems to me that Jesus has this inner circle of disciples, and it's Peter and John and James. And if I was Andrew, maybe when we get to heaven, this will all make sense. I'd feel left out every time Jesus is going to get together with his what would seem like his favorite three little disciples. He never asked me to go, and that's my brother there. Peter's my brother. There's two sets of brothers, James and John, they're both in there, and then Andrew. But I don't know why, maybe, Peter, maybe Andrew says, I don't want, i got enough to do. So there's two things that are interesting. In this same passage, when Luke talks about it, he says they're going on the mountain to pray. And the other thing that's interesting, not just in this passage, but going forward, every time we hear Peter, John, and James, we never see the name Andrew. And I've got an inquiring mind, and there's an ad on TV that says inquiring minds want to know, and I don't have an answer for that. But let's talk about this mountain, this Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 120 miles, picture this, north of Jerusalem. Now we would say, more or less, from here, Mount Hermon would be north of Watertown, give or take, okay? Are we in agreement on that? Say yes, yes, good. Mount Hermon is where the Jordan River begins to make its way from that mountain down into the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Its peak is 9,000 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel, and in wintertime today, in our culture, there's a ski resort today on Mount Hermon. Now, as I mentioned, Sharon and I are going to be gone for five weeks volunteering. We spend all that five weeks in the city of Colorado Springs. The altitude in Colorado Springs is 6,000 feet. So for the next five weeks, I will be what's called sucking air, okay? There's no oxygen, there's not near enough oxygen. People that live there say that you have to live there at least a year before your heart and lungs develop so you can acclimate yourself to that altitude. We have an apartment and the dining room is about two blocks away and every time we walk it seems like it's uphill both ways and I'm out of breath. And when we just do our errands, whenever we're going up even one flight of stairs, it's like, hold on, let's stop halfway up. I mean, that's what it's like. Now picture Jesus and the disciples. Now it doesn't say in verse 2 that they're going to the top of the mountain, which would be a ways up there, 9,000 feet. But even if they only went halfway up, it's 4,500 feet, and that's thin air. Now, when you get to the top, you can see in any direction on a clear day, you can see 100 miles. So if we would take a little trip to the Holy Land, okay, why not? And we could hike up to the top of Mount Hermon. On a clear day, you could see all the way to the south. You could see it would just be a speck on the horizon, but we could see Jerusalem. And if we went facing to the west, we could see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And on a clear day, we could see the island of Cyprus. It's a beautiful place. It was beautiful then, and it's still beautiful today. But here's the question. Why does Jesus take these guys on a hike up a mountain? What does he want to get away with these guys for? And one commentary I read last week or the week before, it said this. It was because the disciples needed to be encouraged. They needed some time alone with Jesus. And there's no time alone with Jesus if they're down there in the flatlands because they're just just flooded with people everywhere they go. Just a few days before, Jesus had shared with his disciples the news that they were not ready for. He shared with his disciples that in a short time, he was going to go to the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and he was going to die on that cross. He was going to suffer, and then he was going to die. Now, you have your Bibles open, Mark chapter 9. Just turn to the left, one page. Let's look at Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer... Nobody enjoys suffering. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Nobody enjoys suffering. Nobody enjoys hearing a story about somebody being killed. And after three days, rise again. These Peter, John, and James, and all the other other disciples who were traveling with Jesus... They're all good young Jewish boys. And they've been growing up in the synagogue and they have been taught one week after the next that we are waiting for the Messiah. And everything they had been taught about this Messiah who was going to come and be their Savior did not include suffering and being killed and dying on a cross. This just blows their mind. This guy, this rabbi that they're following... Because that's one thing about young Jewish boys, they wanted to be trained by a rabbi. So when Jesus says, Come follow me, they just drop everything because they have been waiting to follow a rabbi. And now he's telling us that he's going to be killed. Nobody Imagine from a human perspective, if you're in that conversation, or imagine that next week some friend of yours who goes to the doctor comes to your house and tells you that they only have a few weeks to live. We don't want to hear news like that. That's heartbreaking. Some of us have been in situations where we've had friends who know they're, they're struggling with the disease and they're going to die. Sharon and I had a dear friend a year ago who was, by the sovereignty of God, was stricken with a disease, and there was no getting better, and there was no cure, and it was devastating, it was devastating, this young person, just full of life, and had a family, and I mean, how does this make any sense, and I don't know, but God knows, and then to walk with them through that process over the next number of months, and And then for me to go visit that person on the day they did die. The family called and asked if I would come that day because they knew that that person was soon to enter heaven. That's a tough situation. It breaks my heart even to think about it. Now, Jesus knows. Remember, he's God in the flesh. God. One of the attributes of God is that he's omniscient. He knows everything. Jesus knows everything as well. He's God in the flesh. So after telling them, after telling these disciples that he is about to die, he invites Peter and John and James to come up with him so that they can get away from the rest of the world and be all alone, and on that mountain, those disciples experience something that they would never forget. Look at Mark 9, verses 2 to 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was... He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now let me just share something from the bottom of my heart. Other than than when I read that story in the Bible, other than that, or other than when I'm in a small group, or other than when we're in a Sunday school class and we read this story, or we're in church and the pastor reads this paragraph. I have never, not even one time in my whole life, have I ever used the word transfigured. Okay? It's not that I don't use it outside of church. I don't even use it inside of church unless I'm talking about those same verses. I remember growing up, my dad used to say, and I was the oldest of four kids, and he used to say, Steve, don't use words that you don't know what they mean. And he was talking about getting into trouble by using words that I don't know what they mean. I'm I'm telling you the same thing. Why would we ever use the word transfigured if we don't even know what it means? And I'm convinced that not only do people outside of the church have no idea what it means, Most of us in church are not exactly sure what it means, and so we don't even talk about it inside the church. Most of us don't even have that word transfigured in our vocabulary. This particular Greek word is used only four times in the entire New Testament. The word actually means to change from one form to another. Okay, It means to change from one form to another. And I think of the four places in the New Testament where it is used... in the way that's the easiest to understand, is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So keep one hand in Mark and use your other hand to turn to Romans chapter 12. And let's look at this verse. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That same exact Greek word that shows up in Mark chapter 9 as the word transfigured is the same exact Greek word that shows up in Romans 12.2, and here it's translated as transformed. Paul is telling us in Romans twelve two that as we allow... Now, this is part God on his part, but we have a responsibility as well. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our lives don't just change automatically. It requires work on our part. As we, in Romans 12, 2, as we allow the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, to change us from the inside out... Our lives will be changed. We will change from, we will get rid of that. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. We will get rid of the bad sin, the ugly habits that we used to have, and we will begin to apply new spiritual disciplines in our life. Maybe it's reading the Bible. Maybe it's praying, whatever it is. Maybe we're more faithful in church attendance. But we will constantly be working on getting rid of the sin as we allow The Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Our lives, Paul says, will be transformed. That's the same word that Mark uses, and he uses the word transfigured. So, let's go back to Mark, chapter 9, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and they led up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. We could also say he was transformed. It's the same word. He was transformed. He was changed from one form to another. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one on earth has seen, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now here's what its I've tried to figure out in my mind. What is this like? It's almost as though there's the veil that was lifted. Can you picture this? Can you imagine this? It's almost as though as they're standing there on the mountain, this this veil is lifted, and Peter and James and John, for a moment, were able to see inside of heaven. And they saw Jesus and Elijah and Moses talking with each other. Now one commentary I read was this, it says the veil of this humanity, his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one moment in his earthly life. Or put another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. And as fast as it happened, it was over. And Moses and Elijah are gone. Now, most of us have asked this question, maybe all of us have asked this question in one way or another. When we get to heaven, will we recognize other people? Okay, so now let's just say that there's some tragedy in Sioux Falls and we all die today, okay, hypothetically, we all die today. When we get to heaven, will we know each other? I I can't help but imagine that I wouldn't know Sharon or Gary or Dave. I mean, I would know, right? We would know each other. Well, what about the people we never met? What about the Christians over there in China? Or in Russia? Or Mongolia? Or Australia? Will we know them? Or will we need to be introduced to them? Here's another question that goes through my wild and crazy mind. If, when you're... 20 years old, your grandma or your grandpa died, okay? And they were a Christian. Now picture that. You were 20, your grandma and grandpa died, and they were 90, okay? Now you're 90, and you die. When you get to heaven, are you 90? Will your grandma know you? Because you certainly will look different than you did 70 years before, Right? Well, see, I'm one of these guys, I don't want to develop my whole theology or any part of my theology just based on one verse, but I think there is a clue in Mark chapter 4 about the fact that, yes, we will know each other, and it says this, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. There's no way. There's just no way Elijah and Moses could have known each other while they lived here on the earth because they lived 500 years apart. Unless that's some special thing that happens. The minute you walk through the front door, you know everybody. But how did they know each other? John was so overwhelmed with this that years later he said this in John 1.14. Just write the verse down, you can read it later. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what I think you should do in your Bible. I think you should underline the whole verse. John one fourteen, and then next to that, over in the margin where the publisher gives you that all that white space after you've underlined John 1.14, then write down as a cross-reference, Mark 9, 2 to 4. So you've always got that to come back to. And a similar thing happens in 2 Peter one16 to 18, where Peter is years later writing about what happens on this mountain. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about what happened on that mountain. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. Now Peter is talking about two different times. Here's what he says in verse 17. 2 Peter 1.17, he heard this voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you remember when that was? That was when Jesus was baptized. They were standing there. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we heard, ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's the second time they heard God's voice. And there he's talking about when Jesus was transfigured or transformed. Now some people have asked the question, why? Of all those people who were in heaven at this moment, not at this, not at this moment, not July 28, 2019, but at this moment with Jesus, think of all the people who were in heaven at that moment, why does Jesus bring Elijah and Moses back to earth? just for a split second. Why? Of all the people who were there, why does he choose them? He could have taken anybody. The answer is, I don't know. I don't think anyone else knows either, but there's a lot of good guesses out there. One, One reason, or if you want to use the word guess, go ahead. One guess could be that both Moses and Elijah had previously talked with God while they were on earth on top of other mountains. That's the only correlation I can find here. Moses spoke with God when he was on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 31, and the whole story of the Ten Commandments. Elijah spoke with God on Mount Horeb in a story that's reported for us in 1 Kings 19. Now let's bring it to a close. In Exodus 13, when Pharaoh let the nation of Israel leave Egypt, headed for the promised land. When that happened, God appeared. He led the nation of Israel in a cloud during the day and what looked like a pillar of fire at night. It says in Exodus 13, verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people cloud and the pillar of fire were signs indicating the presence of God. And some people would say that that cloud and that pillar of fire proved that God was with us. When Jesus took his disciples with him up on Mount Hermon, it had been 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen God's glory displayed in a light like this. Now, on that day, as recorded for us in Mark 9, 7, God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Let me ask you one question. Are you listening to him? God spoke and said to the disciples, this is my son. Listen to him. And I'm asking you. Are you listening to him? I mean, what is he saying to you? How, how does he even communicate with you? The number one way God communicates this to us is the reading of his word. And so... Chances are, if we're not in the Word, He's not speaking to us. But when He speaks to us, are we listening? Not not in an audible voice, but in our consciousness, in our heart, off the pages of the Word. Is He asking you to give up a sinful habit? And if he's asking you to do that, are you willing to do it? Is he asking you to begin a spiritual discipline? Like I talked about 20 minutes ago. Maybe it's reading God's word more regularly or more consistently. Or, or maybe it's spending more consistent time in prayer. If, he's, if that's what he's asking you to do, are you willing to do it? Maybe he's asking you to seek forgiveness for some sin in your life that you know you've got but you don't ask him to forgive you of it. Maybe he's asking you to give him first place in your life instead of second or third or fourth place behind all these other things. Maybe he's asking you to forgive someone of something they did to you, but you're not ready to forgive. Give that other person, because of our old sin nature, it's easier just to hold a grudge against that person, so we're not going to forgive them. Well, one of those five principles that we talked about a half an hour ago was this. Jesus is not just a good man. He is the living, the son of the living God. And God wants us to listen to what his son is saying, and then do it. Now, if we were going to summarize this chapter, if you want to write this right next to Mark chapter 9, the thing we're going to remember about John chapter 9, and I apologize because these come up kind of small, except Trey's made them miraculously bigger. He's a miracle worker back there in the booth. Mark chapter 8, there's no such thing as too little. That was last week. Mark chapter 9, listen to him. And so that's my words of encouragement to you today. Listen. When Jesus speaks, either through his word or through another person, a wise counselor or a confident, listen. And then do your best to apply that to your life. Your assignment, and I have failed the last couple of weeks to remind you of your assignment. Your assignment is to read Mark chapter 10 before I get back on September 8th. Now, if you really want to catch up, how about if you go back from the beginning and read two of those every week, one and two, three and four, or five, and then read whatever it is, nine and ten the week before I come back. Let's close in a word of prayer, and we're going to ask the ushers to come and take the offering, and I can tell you uh, we're going to miss you guys over the next number of weeks. We'll pray for you every Sunday morning. You can count on us, and we need you to be praying for us while we're gone. Well, Lord Jesus, we... Uh, Thank you for loving us, even in spite of our sin, and even in spite of our attitudes, even in spite of our sometimes ugly habits, even for the undisciplined parts of our life. We, you still love us, and we're so grateful for that. And We believe, God, from the bottom of our hearts that the Bible teaches that there is nothing we can ever do that would cause you to love us less than you already do. And there's nothing we could ever do that would cause you to love us more than you already do because your love is constant and it's permanent and it's perfect. So God, even in the midst of us getting in the way of ourselves, thank you for always loving us. Give us the desire to hear your voice and to make those changes in our life. And we thank you, Lord, as we take this offering. We thank you, for the Lord, uh, Lord, for how week after week, the... The friends and family here at Cross Point are so faithful in their stewardship. We ask that you'd continue the continue to encourage the board to be faithful in how we use these funds. Help us to be good stewards of the money that's entrusted into our care. And we thank you for each gift and for each giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.